Hi everybody, JP here. Want to take a moment to tell you about St. John Associates. They're a great recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners. They've been around for over 30 years and they match thousands of physicians with practices and healthcare systems across the country. They have an experienced team that works in all specialties, including neurosurgery and orthopedic spine surgery, and they have close connections with employers across the country. They will look at your CV, They'll match you with practices based on your preferences for geography and lifestyle. And all of this comes at no cost to the physician job applicant. So just visit them at stjohnjobs.com slash nspod to get started with your job search today if you're in the market. Again, that's stjohnjobs dot com slash nspod. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am so excited today to finally record the episode on spine fellowships. And uh, those of you out there who know anything about neurosurgery know that neurosurgery is 70% spine, meaning either 70% of neurosurgeons do mostly spine or 70% of all collective cases are spine. So the topic of spine fellowship is a really, really important one. Does a person need to do a fellowship? What does a fellowship mean? Uh, what value does it add? Is it worth the extra time? And um, it's, it's just an important conversation because we are entering a new era with our relationship in the uh, orthopedic and neurosurgical arena. There's so much to talk about. So I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by two of our fellows here in Miami, uh, James Boudou and Oliver Eiling. And you guys want to introduce yourselves real quick, give a quick background on where you're from, how you got here? Sure, sure. Uh, so thanks for the introduction, Dr. Wang. I'm James Badu. I'm one of the infolded PGY5 uh, spine fellows. Uh, I'm actually from the D.C. area, did all my medical school and such there, and then came down to Miami uh, to do my residency and, and currently doing the infolded fellowship along with Dr. Wang and Dr. Levy. And um, that's in terms of introduction, that's me. And I'll let Oliver introduce himself before we dive in further. Uh, I'm Oliver Ayling, originally from uh, Vancouver, Canada, and did my neurosurgery training at uh, University of British Columbia and came down to Miami for uh, this year to uh, work with Dr. Wang and Dr. Levy and really focus on complex and minimally invasive spine surgery. Great, perfect. And I wanted to, to talk to you two, particularly because you guys are not dilettantes. You guys are excellent surgeons. Uh, I've worked with both of you, and, and I know that you're serious from a standpoint of academia, uh, in terms of commitment, eth- ethics of spine surgery, and you're, you're, you're probably going to be spine surgeons for the rest of your lives, I hope. And so let's go into this topic of maybe, let's just explore the issue of why you even decided to do any fellowship. Like you, you trained a lot of spine in your residency in general. Um, Oliver, why, why don't we start with you and tell us about how it's like at Vancouver. In, in my, uh, we had a very comprehensive training working at a level one trauma center and Primarily, our training in spine was open and using navigation. And one of the shortcomings that uh, in my training was the lack of minimally invasive spine surgery. And I thought that um, that's a very additional and complementary skill set to add to an open uh, training that I already had. And that's why I came down to Miami to learn from Dr. Wang, who is an expert in the field, as everyone that listens to the podcast knows. And um, to further extend on that, I think that in the future, as people uh, become more and more subspecialized within neurosurgery, the 
uh, shingle of having a fellowship becomes more important as you do complex cases. And um, I wanted to have that uh, uh, behind my name to be able to treat patients in a comprehensive way that came to the spine clinic. Yeah, let me just go a little deeper on that before we go to James. Is there any kind of restriction that you've sensed either in Canada or the U.S.? Like if you don't have a – like in orthopedics, if you don't have a fellowship, you're not going to be allowed to do spine in a hospital generally, right? In the neurosurgery side, do you see that as something that's already happening? Because in the past, we never really had that, right, in the last 20 years or so. I, I think that um, it has not happened in spine yet because spine is seen as bread and butter for training. But as new technologies and more complex problems – manifest themselves for the spine surgeon that will become a thing. If you look at um, something like vascular neurosurgery, that already is uh, well established that most people practicing vascular neurosurgery today are fellowship trained and I think spine will, will be that way in the future. How about you, James? So what, what's the value proposition for you? And, and let me just add that you're considering and probably going to do an eighth year fellowship as well, right? Even though you're doing two infolded years as a PGY four and five. Right. So when I came to picking residencies, for me, Miami was at the top of my list because of how strong of a spine program we have. And and during the infold of fellowship, you really get a sense of the depth and the breadth of what we do here. And the reason I kind of gravitated towards spine was because not only because of the faculty that we have here, but the patient population. You, you have that ability to make a drastic and immediate impact um, in a tangible way. Uh, so for me, when I was considering the infolded fellowships, it was, well, which patient population do I resonate the most with and which faculty members have kind of taken me under their wing uh, here as a, as a resident? And that was the spine section. And, and it has not been uh, lacking for me. Uh, what for me, the reason why is was kind of delving more and understanding the complexity of spine. You, you know, Dr. Wang does an amazing job here about te- teaching us about that being a spine surgeon is only the actual technical part is part of it, but understanding the patient, understanding where they're coming from, and, and using that to dictate management. Uh, and so that was one of the things that I think spending some dedicated time understanding how to get a patient from the clinic seeing them a few times in clinic and to the OR that I don't, I don't necessarily know you would get unless you spend dedicated time doing a spine fellowship. Yeah, so that, that's interesting, James, you bring that up because you're right, there is that outpatient uh, experience that as a resident, there just aren't enough residents, right? So right. It's, it's viewed as a lower priority, right, for residency. More on-call, more OR priority and inpatient rounding and stuff like that, right? So, so James, let's continue with this discussion about the infolded versus the, uh, let's call it PGY-8, one day maybe PGY-7, we don't know. But after completion of residency, that's when people do their fellowships normally. But we know that lots of people do infolded training, whether it be endovascular, trauma, or spine. So do you, do you sense, I mean, there's a couple infolded fellows here and there's a bunch of uh, PGY-8 fellows. What do you sense is the difference in the experience from, from your perspective, right. right? Like when you're a four or five or six versus a seven or eight or sometimes even nine now, but what is the difference in terms of the experience? Or is there, is there actually a difference? Right. And, and, I, and I've you know, now seen a, f- a few years, I guess five years in total of external fellows that come in. And, and the first thing that I uh, 
want to say, and I talked to them, especially as a PGY 4 and 5 when I did this, was that there's no way that the skill sets of a PGY 8 and a PGY 5 are equivalent. You have more years under your belt, uh, you've learned more, you've seen more, you've done more complex, whether they're cranial or spine cases, and those skill sets only help you. Uh, and that way, the PGY 8 year is kind of a refining year. Uh, for me, it was it's slightly different because you know I'm still in the, the fundamental stages of my training. So learning and seeing what these guys bring from their external programs to here for me has been fruitful whether it's similar to how we do things here or, or starkly different to how we do things here so i think that the benefit for me doing it as an infolded is really honing in on a subspecialty that to me is what i want to do and really learning not only from the faculty but from these uh, postgraduate fellows that are coming from other institutions. It's really different flavors in the same pot. Uh, and so as I move forward, I not only have the skill sets that I learned from Dr. Wang and Dr. Levy, but also little tidbits from pro, uh, programs from across the world uh, that come here to do their fellowship. So I find it extremely fruitful uh, in doing it as an infolded. And so may, as I move forward to doing a postgraduate fellowship, I, I take not only the stuff I learned in Miami, but from all these trainees from around the world with me moving forward. And so when I'm in that quote-unquote refining year, I, I have these other skill sets that I've gained. Oliver? Yeah, I think James uh, raises some great points. It's very uh, complimentary to have uh, infolded and external fellows on the same team. And um, you get in spine, most of the time there are two, two sides and you need two surgeons. So we're working closely together and uh, learning from, from each other. And I think that's a huge benefit. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great model that uh, programs should adopt, I think. So let me, let me go a little deeper because you guys are too kind and you're too, how do you say, you're too equanimous. I, I want to dive a little deeper. I'm going to present you a logic puzzle because this is a very common question in the minds of maybe half of residents in training today. Let's assume that you have to pick between doing an infolded-ish fellow. I don't know if someone called that like, the, like a transitional practice year or PGY-6 or PGY-5, but it's, it's an infolded year during your residency versus a fellowship that is clearly afterwards. So in other words, probably a different place, right? Different location after you've completed your residency. Now let's take away any factors about money or the total time in training. So obviously people think, well, I'd rather not spend that extra year let, or some people don't want to travel to different places. Let's take those logistics aside and focus purely on the benefit you derive for the future of your career. So let's just say it doesn't matter what happens in training. In the end, you've got 20, 30, 35 years to practice, and there's going to be this impact. Which would you pick if you had to pick between an infolded versus and external. And, and I know it's kind of a, a weird question because if you take all time away, you're like, well, of course, the eighth year you're going to benefit more. But you're also getting it later in your training. So maybe if you learn things earlier that are different, that it, it metastasizes or I should say grows exponentially over time, right? So I want you to think about this question, like if you had to pick, and I know that you guys both have great experience, right? But you, you, you know, and not necessarily for yourself, but like in general, what do you think has a better value proposition? Oliver, let me start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, my answer is self-selecting, but I think that doing it after your training when you're already, uh, certified or, or board eligible, I think adds an element that is the most beneficial because there's an, a level of trust that you get from the patient and the attendings that allows you to do a deeper dive into surgeries that may be new or complex for you and allows you to, the fundamental aspect of that is that sense of independence and learning from 
each step of the operation in a way that as a resident you're not as focused on because you've uh, you're pulled in multiple directions as a resident and as a fellow after your training you're just doing one specialty and you're focused on that and you have a, a bit more trust from the attendings because of uh, you already have that collective experience from your residency. Mm, got it. Okay. James? So I, I think I would kind of say a little bit of the contrary, kind of going off what Dr. Wang was saying that you know, when you plant a seed, that only time allows it to grow. And when that seed is planted earlier, it becomes a more robust tree later on. Uh, and I think that that's kind of asterisk with what program and where you're at. Um, we're fortunate that, you know, here, maybe I, I see it from a skewed view is where we have everything that we've seen open or MIS or whatever it may be. And so getting those opportunities to be at that critical portion of a case earlier on gives you more comfort as you move forward. Um, so I, I think for me, I, I, I like, I prefer, and I love the infolded experience at this time because I know that I want to be a spine surgeon. And so having that time to refine those skills within training with leaders earlier on, for me, I, I've, I've loved it. Okay. So let me, let me ask you a question about something that you may or may not have heard of. Uh, but it's a trend being defined. So, so there's a couple things going on out there in our orthopedic colleagues' world, right? So neurosurgery is neurosurgery. But there's two trends I want you to comment on. And, and understand that, you know, we're just commenting casually. Like, this is not a political statement, and I don't want to hold anybody's feet to the fire. But I think they're important trends. The first trend is that some of the most prestigious orthopedic spine fellowships prefer and sometimes only take now neurosurgeons that have finished their training. In other words, they're not even taking orthopedic trainees. They're taking neurosurgeons, and the answers and the reasoning for that is obvious to us, right? I don't, I don't need a comment for the people to hear, but for the people to know, they know why that's happening. And I, I have my own opinions about this, but I don't, again, a lot of these folks who are running these fellowships on the orthopedic side are my friends, and, but I have my political views on it, which I'll withhold. And the second thing, which is in parallel and related, and you may or may not have heard of this, is the tendency now towards the really high-end fellowships to require a pre-fellowship. So in other words, orthopedics is what, five or six years of training? Now they want people to do two years of fellowship, aka like our skull-based people in neurosurgery. So you're doing two separate years of fellowship, and I recently heard about one fellowship that kind of almost requires, if you're an orthopedist, that you've already done another fellowship. So two years for them. What is your take on this in general? Because our orthopedic colleagues across the aisle make up a good proportion of our field, right? Uh, James, let me start with you. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that, that comes to me when you say that is it shows and gives uh, credence to the complexity of spine. That maybe what was seen as kind of bread and butter, like, oh, it's just a spine surgery. Uh, now you're seeing that it's much more technical and much more nuanced, whether it is from the preoperative decision-making, planning, seeing how to manage a patient in clinic to the intraoperative, you know, as technology advances, understanding, hey, can you manage this endoscopically or do you need to do a, a T-lift or a lateral or do a more open traditional approach? And so I'm assuming that in these quote-unquote higher-end orthopedic fellowships or other fellowships, they want to kind of weed some of that people out so that that way when they come to them, it's once again more of a refining school as opposed to, hey, here's a lamina. This is how to do a laminectomy. So it's, it's higher yield, not only for the mentor, but for the mentee as well. Yeah, I, I, James raises an interesting point. And one of the, as Dr. Wang said, they're the obvious things that I, I think that everyone listening to understands. But I think one of, in terms of a fellowship, it's important to, for people to ask themselves what the role of the fellow is. And if a fellowship program is requiring 
extensive training even to be admitted to the fellowship so that they can they can um, provide service and generate volume and revenue for the hospital that may not be the best environment for everybody and so it's important to understand why people are requiring more and more training just to do a fellowship when the fellowship itself should be the the finishing school and it's important that people selecting their fellowships need to do a deep dive on what's going to be a good fit for them so is it a high volume center where they have uh can do a lot of operations or are they going to have one-on-one mentorship and people need to decide what environment's going to be best for them to launch their careers yeah that's you guys you guys have really thought deeply about this and I, i'm really enjoying listening to your answers let me let me conclude by asking you a final relatively complicated question and um, we got into this a little bit on our discussions with the functional and um, vascular skull-based colleagues, which is, what is a functional fellowship? Is it pain? Is it epilepsy? Is it, is it movement disorders? And et cetera, et cetera, right? In other words, these old school confines uh, are artificial silos, like is pain part of spine? Is peripheral nerve part of spine, et cetera, et cetera? And we, we face that here locally. But if we just took spine and the spinal column at face value, I think that I could probably delineate various sub subspecialties, um, whether it be deformity, um, pediatric scoliosis, minimally invasive, and maybe a branch of that is endoscopic, um, spinal oncology, trauma, um, and uh, arthroplasty. I'm thinking in high cervical. Those are kind of the the, the, the gambit. And and I've always joked that one day I want to start a general spine fellowship where you learn how to do like the ACDF and microdisc really well, <laughs> because I don't want to diminish those. Those are right. maybe our most important procedures. But let's look at these general categories. And I'm sure in your own mind, you have a construct of what this looks like for you. I want you to tell me with regards to three questions, and I'm not sorry, it's not like a quiz, but I'm very curious to hear the answer. Number one, in our field, which is the most lacking? In other words, which is the one, and I don't mean that the field is lacking, which is the one that we need to be better at, have more education? People are like, seek, in the answer, of like, I'm gonna seek out like a spine onc fellowship because we don't do it as advanced here, that kind of thing, right? Which is the biggest need? The second is, um, which is the biggest opportunity? Like, in other words, where do you see the future of this field heading? Okay, like, in other words, like the big opportunity may be in, opportunity A, let's say, you know, let's use spinal oncology get an example. People know that half of all people dying in cancer have spine metastases at the time of death. Maybe the spine metastases becomes the biggest problem if we prolong life through chemotherapy. I'm just saying, for example, mm-hmm. right? And the third question, I apologize, very complicated, is where do you think technically it's hardest to learn? In other words, if you just took an average, uh, a typical resident, finishing neurosurgery without any subspecialization, and now they need to master this, aka, where do they maybe derive the most benefit from that extra training? Which of these fields seems like, and I know the questions are interrelated and you don't have to answer them in three parts, but you get the feel of it. Like what, how do people make the choice? Because we know that people say come here more for the MIS experience, let's say. And some people go to see, say, say Tyler Kosky for the deformity experience, right? Mm-hmm. Or Zia Gokoslin for the oncology experience. So I'm just giving you some time to think about what I'm asking you. And you don't have to answer this question, but you get the feel for it. Oliver, let me start with you. I, so um, I came from a program very focused on uh, cranial neurosurgery. And uh, so people, well, why spine? And I always think like, how many people do you know that have had a hip and a knee replacement? It's the same disease. And so I, I think that the, the biggest um, 
advances and the biggest patient volumes are going to be in degenerative lumbar disease and degenerative cervical disease. And I think that all of the other areas like tumor or deformity are, are um, sort of offshoots or, or niche or subspecialization of that. But I think that the biggest advancements are going to be for um, degenerative conditions that uh, th- that's where the biggest denominator is and I think that the most advancements will come with that in terms of patient selection and deriving the best outcomes and also with uh, emerging technologies that aid in that um, and I think some of the other areas like tumor for example as you mentioned Dr. Wang a lot of those advances are going to be the medical or the oncology side of it but um, that, that that's how I've kind of thought about the future like what in 20-30 years it's going to be like hips and knees but everyone's getting one it's going to be the same for lumbar spine surgery right and, and so what I, how i would kind of look at it is looking at it from a perspective of where are where are there the most i guess where are there the fewest cases when, it, when we're talking from a fellowship perspective where are there the fewest cases that you're seeing in whatever program wherever you may be um, if that if you're coming from a place that doesn't have a lot of onk, if that's what your interest is, it has to be the marrying of those two, where you feel as if you want to get more more exposure to, and that's what you want to do your fellowship kind of in. I think that that's how it would be, and then looking forward to 10, 15, 20 years, looking at what the field is going to look like. Maybe it is the merger. You have these two camps of you know bigger open and and smaller. Like, well, how can you? impact the big open but doing it in a more minimally invasive way you know i think that that's probably how i would look at it moving forward well how can i take these two two worlds and marry them in a in a, a synchronous way that optimizes patient outcomes and you know you're talking about let's say you, you can go down the line of spinal oncology you know do you need to how can you take a sacrum out in a in a less invasive way. It sounds crazy now, or maybe doing a vertebrectomy in a less invasive way, but are there ways? And the only way to do that is challenging it, being innovative it, and pushing those boundaries forward. Or if you're talking from a deformity perspective, same thing. You know, how can you apply the, the fundamental principles of spine biomechanics and then the principles of MIS and merge those two together in a way that at the end of the day helps patients? Wow, that's you know I really enjoyed uh, your comments and in respect to your time, I'm gonna you guys got both have busy busy days today to get to in doing spine surgery. But uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast and um, really I'm excited to see your careers, both you uh, really take off and become leaders in our field. Appreciate the time, Dr. Wang. Thanks Thanks for for having us, us. Dr. Wang. (laughs) Hi everybody, JP here. I, like any of you hearing this, just finished listening to Dr. Wang's excellent conversation with James and Oliver about the role of spine fellowship within modern neurosurgical training. In particular, how they touched on the difference between infolded and postgraduate or PGY-8 fellowships. As anyone who knows me, or really who's listened to the show, is uh, almost certainly aware, I'm very interested in spine surgery for my own career. I came in with that intention. But knowing where you want to end up is not the same as knowing how exactly you're going to get there. So the past few years of residency for me have been a time of not only learning how to be a neurosurgeon and how to do neurosurgery, but also learning how to navigate the landscape of neurosurgical training, how to define and pursue postgraduate ambitions, and really answering that question that so many of us have to answer. Should I do a fellowship? And while I've been lucky enough to have Dr. Wang as a friend and mentor for many years now and have excellent mentorship here at Rush where I'm training, I found it really beneficial to hear Dr. Wang talk about these questions 
with two other people with different backgrounds, with different aspirations, and at different points in training to kind of get that same question answered through a different lens. And I'll tell you, it's a question I've been wrestling with um, in a serious way for the past year, but even beyond that, at some low level for the past few years. Should you do a fellowship? And like so many things in neurosurgery, and in particular in spine surgery, there are as many answers to that question as there are spine surgeons you can ask. So with that in mind, here are just a few quick thoughts I had listening to this conversation about spine fellowship. And I'll tell you, if I were in your position listening to this, I would have the same thought you're probably having. Why do I want to listen to this PGY4 talk about fellowships? I agree with you completely. But I will say that through the past few years of doing this show and some unique and possibly pathologic aspects of my personality, I have spoken with a lot of people at a lot of programs at every level up and down the hierarchy of neurosurgical training. And so at the very least, I could maybe synthesize and apply some of those opinions and some of that advice that I've collected over these years. I'll start with low-hanging fruit. Do I need to do a spine fellowship if I want an academic job? I have asked that question to graduating senior residents, current fellows, junior faculty, program directors, chairman. I've received every conceivable answer. I'll tell you the younger people I ask, those graduating, those pursuing fellowships, they tend more frequently to say, yeah, of course you got to do a fellowship if you want an academic job, but there's some selection bias there. And honestly, I just don't know if there is a one-size-fits-all answer for the country as a whole. I think it's going to vary program to program, group by group, and what the job market looks like when someone happens to graduate. I'll also remind our listeners that back in the first season of this show, episode 59, we had on uh, Dr. Vince Trainellis, uh, one of my attendings here at Rush, to talk about this very question about the need and role for fellowships within neurosurgery. And if you ask him, Dr. Trainellis, should I do a fellowship? He'll ask you right back, why? To him, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. I won't belabor that entire conversation. It's there if you want to listen to it. It was a really good episode. I'll also share some advice from another one of my attendings, Dr. Ricardo Fontes, our program director now, who really helped me simplify and reorient this whole question. It's so easy to get caught up in the academia question and the CV question and the networking question, but he just said simply, listen, JP, if you're going to do a fellowship, go somewhere where they do something we don't do here. Go somewhere you can actually learn something new. And again, that may seem obvious, but it's so easy to get caught up in these questions of, do I need a fellowship to get this job? How do I meet people and hear about job opportunities, etc., etc.? It's easy to forget that it's a year of your life. It's a year of deferring full attending salary. And it's truly an extension of the apprenticeship period of our career and training. So whether it's administrative or clinical or surgical or technological, I think it is important to make your primary focus of deciding to do a fellowship and picking a fellowship actually learning something and not just those secondary community networking-based aspects of the decision, which are there and which are important, but maybe shouldn't be the heart of the decision to do a fellowship. Okay, you've all been patient and I promise I'm going to land this plane soon, but I do want to wrap with some quick thoughts on this question of specialization and generalization within spine neurosurgery. This can be very complicated. Oliver made a great point 
about how cerebrovascular neurosurgery has moved very much into a niche subspecialized field where fellowship training may increasingly become a requisite to do these procedures. But that might not be a perfect correlate for spine because whereas on the vascular side of things, the universe of open cerebrovascular surgeries happening each year has decreased significantly after the introduction and really explosion of endovascular treatments for these pathologies. On the other hand, every decade sees an increase in the number of spine surgeries being done each year. Not just because we're all living longer under gravity with more opportunity to degenerate, but because we have more surgeries to do now, and we can do them more safely in sicker, frailer, older people. So there are more surgical patients and more surgeries to offer them. And in necessary parallel, technological advances in spine have increased the surgical armamentarium. Unlike in vascular, where it seems that open cerebrovascular surgery is technique-driven, but the technological drive is still happening in the endovascular side of things. And yes, I acknowledge all the caveats. I am painting with a broad brush, I am simplifying and generalizing, and I am giving my impression of certain trends that I've observed in a very qualitative, non-systematic review way. But I'll say that you have leaders in cerebrovascular surgery like Dr. Mike Lawton, who's been on the show, who make strong cases that open cerebrovascular surgery should be reserved for centers of excellence and cases around the country should be referred to those handful of centers. Whereas leaders in spinal neurosurgery and leaders of the joint section on spine and peripheral nerves have made it a clear message in the past several years that neurosurgeons are spine surgeons. Full stop. So it's interesting that Dr. Wang joked about having a general spine fellowship where you learn ACDFs and microdiscs because Rather than a fellowship, this past year we've been hearing many leaders in the spine community, including Dr. Chris Shaffrey, making the rounds discussing the possibility of a unified, dedicated spine residency. Separate from neurosurgery, separate from orthopedic surgery, a discipline and residency path of its own, strictly for spine surgery. And although I don't have the time, experience, or chutzpah to talk about that in any serious way here alone, it's at least an interesting intellectual exercise to think about what makes something a specialty or a subspecialty within that. And to think about what historic forces or instances of chance led to the current landscape of medical and surgical specialties we have today. How much of that history was organic and how much of it was planned? And where is the vector of history pointing for spine neurosurgery today? Anyhow, it's always a lot of fun for me when I sit out an episode and Dr. Wang does one without me because then I get to listen to it. And there's not really another podcast out there like this one, so it's nice to be a consumer sometimes. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and we'll be back next week with another episode in the Fellowship Series.
Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.